0: this week at Hope Point.
1: And so maybe Jesus is just alluding here to the fact that you've covered yourself in the darkness of worldliness, the darkness of filth. Let me give you a white robe and cover all of your filth with my purity. How insulting it is to God that somebody who for years could be covered in shame and done all sorts of acts of rebellion and Jesus comes to them and says, let me cover you with my white robe of purity and they respond like the Laodiceans, I don't need that.
0: Imagine a man who has not worked out for 10 years yet describes himself as a very fit person. He remains adamant in that assertion until the day that he meets with a personal trainer. Only then does he realize the truth about the state of his health. That's a picture of what is occurring in the seventh church that Jesus addresses in the book of Revelation. They viewed themselves as spiritually vibrant, yet Jesus said they were spiritually nauseating. Because our capacity for self-deception is huge, God's love confronts us and rebukes us so that His power might forgive us and renew us. Let's listen to what Richard has to say to us from Revelation chapter three.
1: I um, I learned something this week that, um, Cool Whip does have an expiration date. I came in and middle of the afternoon just wanted something sweet and just took a swish with my finger across that creamy substance and it was sour and everything. All the alarm bells of my test buds went off and they said, eject, eject, retreat, empty mouth of all contents and I spewed that stuff out. What once had been delightful was now nauseating. And I think that is a fair description of the church of Laodicea, the seventh and final church that we look at in the seven churches of Asia Minor, located now in modern-day Turkey. This is church number seven. These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. I really do feel that this is one of the most significant sermons I could preach here in 2022. Your eternal joy depends on you being fully in the kingdom of God, fully in to all in with Christ. And it doesn't work any other way. And God is willing to confront you and willing to confront me whenever we try to play games and do it any other way than an all in kind of life. I take no joy in saying this, but today we're going to study the worst church of the New Testament. We're studying the worst church of the seven in in, um, in Revelation, it's a church about which Jesus Christ had nothing good to say. Even with the church of Ephesus that had lost its first love, he could at least tell them, you're still engaged in good deeds. And when he spoke to the church in Smyrna of Sardis, he could say, you know, a lot of the people of the church have compromised, but there are some who have not soiled their clothes in worldly Behavior, but about Laodicea, the only thing Jesus Christ could say is, The attitude of your heart wants to make me vomit. Strong words for a disappointing church. And the most amazing thing about the church of Laodicea is the high opinion that it had of itself. In Revelation 3, they said, Verse 17, I'm rich, I have acquired wealth. And do not need a thing. No reliance on God at all. And then Jesus Christ, who does walk among the churches, said to them, you do not realize that you are wretched, poor, pitiful, blind, and, and naked. It's like a student going to a professor at the end of the semester and saying, you don't need to give me a report card. I know I have an A+. Plus. And the professor saying, actually, you've scored the lowest in the class. And you say, well, that's impossible academically for somebody to be so clueless, maybe so, but spiritually it happened. In the same profound way, they gave themselves the opposite grade that God had given them. It is possible to be totally delighted in your life while God is totally disgusted with your heart. The Laodiceans show us How easy it is to be clueless about your true spiritual condition. And it seems to be a characteristic of many in our culture, almost as if a cultural phenomenon has fallen upon the United States where people are more comfortable than ever inventing in their minds a a world, a world that is divorced from reality. Reality. That is, the farther they move from God, the more they boast, I feel close to God. That's what the Laodiceans were saying. But in reality, the worse that a man is, the less that he knows it. That is, a truly righteous man knows that he's bad. A truly unrighteous person thinks that he's good. Laodicea thought they were good and would have continued like that had the Lord not said, I know what's happening. I see it all. He identified himself again with that full knowledge in the beginning of the letter, chapter 3, verse 14. These are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness. Now, in many spheres of life, obviously church But there's many spheres of life when somebody will say something and somebody will reply to that going, amen. (laughs) And we know what they mean by that. They mean, that's right on. I agree. You're right. I love that. And here Jesus Christ identifies himself to the church of Laodicea. It's a phrase not used but uh, another time in the Bible in the Old Testament as the amen. That is, he's the only one who has the authority to give an assessment about your life that is completely true. He's the only one who could say amen. And when the church said, we're doing very well, he said, not going to get an amen on that. Because you're living a charade. And you're comfortable living a charade. Because they said, we do not need a thing from God. We're tight with God. And the Lord says, the condition of your heart makes me want to throw up. That's his words out of the New Testament. In one of their, you know, their famous games in the 1930s, the Yankees and the Red Sox were playing, and Babe Ruth comes to bat. It's two, it's two strikes. He takes strike number three, and the umpire, uh, the umpire, a guy named Pinelli, says, "You're out." And the crowd booed. And Ruth turned to him and said, "Mr. Pinelli, I want to let you know there are 40,000 people, along with myself, who believe that you were wrong." And he says, Mr. Ruth, may I tell you that in this stadium, my opinion is the only one that counts. (laughs) Now this is what Jesus Christ is saying to the church. I am the amen. No matter how good you say you're doing, living that charade, he sees it and he will not commend a life that is lukewarm. So now we have to ask the question, what was it about their life that got this response from Christ? What character flaw would make him say as we've never hear him say, your heart makes me want to vomit? Well, it was arrogance. Arrogance was the problem. And as it was manifesting itself, it was like a spider web, it was interwoven with other things. So if you want to know what the Church of Laodicea dealt with, I'll just lay it out for you, and we'll sort of weave in and out of it the rest of the time. And if you like one of those sermons where it's linear, you go from A to B, it's not that gonna be that way. I'm jumping back and forth to cover these three points. The problem in the church was arrogance. The cause of the arrogance was affluence. And the result of the affluence was apathy. So whenever you're opening your Bible again and you think of Laodicea, you need to think arrogance, affluence, and apathy. You can see their arrogance in verse 17. They say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. And God reminds them in verse 14 I'm the ruler of God's creation, which is literally translated, I'm the beginning of all that is created. So they're saying, I don't need anything when God says, in fact, everything you have has come from me, has started from me. I am the source of the river. And you're just swimming in it. You know that you have drifted far from God when you who are dependent on him for everything feel dependent on him for everything. For nothing. The city itself was, um, was just plain out wealthy. They were a commercial banking center. Their their place in the Silk Road caused them to have much commercial traffic uh, from east to west. So they were a commercial banking center. They were also a, a well-known manufacturing center for um, a prized Uh, fabric of soft black wool that could only be bought in in the city. And there was also a medical school in Laodicea, and the medical school was famous for its ophthalmology. Uh, Really, a couple centuries before Christ, there had been some attempts, and Laodicea had perfected it, of mixing a couple chemicals to develop a very comforting eye salve, an ointment for the relief of pain and maybe even the relief of of disease. And the abundance of all of this wealth from this commerce and success had created a self-sufficiency to the point that they said, we are rich and do not need a thing. It's a big statement to make. Their, their hope was not in the eternal security of Christ. Their hope were, was in things. Things they could buy, things they could make. And you can see how quickly that kind of hope is taken away when we watch the news about Ukraine. If your hope is in something that can be lost, you have no hope at, at all. But they were fully invested in the hope of the world, what the world could give them. They were fully dependent on the world. They said they were not dependent on God at all. It's remarkable that they were even a church. I don't know what they would do. Why would they would gather? Because we're going to see next week when the church assembles in Revelation 4, the church is on its face, on its knees before the Lord in absolute adoration and appreciation because they shout in assembly, all things come from you. And the Laodiceans would say, why would we do that? Why would we say all things come from God? No, all things come from us. We have made it ourselves. Very, very affluent, very, very successful. There's no doubt about it that wealth was a major problem, a major problem in Laodicea. It it was the foundation of all their other problems. The Bible never, Advocates poverty as a lifestyle that's better than wealth. It never admonishes us, don't be wealthy. It just says, be very careful if you are. Be very careful how you use and view that wealth. Nobody says it better than 1 Timothy chapter 6, 17. Paul to Timothy, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth. So he doesn't say anything about you shouldn't be wealthy. He just says, don't brag about it and don't put your hope in it because it could be lost. It's so uncertain, but to put your hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Again, the source of what you got your hands on this turns out to be God anyway. Command them to do good. Command the rich people to do good, which would be all of us in here. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. So concerning wealth, the Bible says don't apologize for it. Just don't boast in it and then don't celebrate it. Instead, share it. You've been made wealthy in order to share. But the more these people earned, the more that they kept they weren't interested in sharing at all because, as we've said before, affluence has the danger of producing apathy. When you have a lot of excess, there's just not within you this living with a sense of need because you have everything you need and, and more, but for them, it produced apathy which we saw earlier, Revelation 3.15, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. This is a description of apathy here, an apathetic heart. I wish you were either one or the other, so because you are lukewarm or apathetic, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. So while they were boasting in their self-sufficiency and self-reliance, Jesus was getting ready to vomit. They were not stunned by God at all, not stunned that wealth had come to them. It had produced an apathy. And Jesus said, "I wish you were one of the other cold or hot." Now, that's a very interesting phrase. It's troubled me through the years. This is the interpretation I'm going to go with it this week. Because you can't read it, "I wish you were cold or hot. Make up your mind. Be a disciple or be a demon. This is what it sounds like. I don't really think he would recommend that. Like, because it's almost like saying it doesn't matter to me, be a disciple or be a demon, make up your mind, both are fine. I don't think, I think in this case you really got to know the city of Laodicea to know what he meant by that. 10 miles to the north was the city of Heropolis. It was famous for its boiling springs that came out of the, the earth, springs that were really medicinal, medicinal in their, their value to people with body aches, orthopedic problems, could find some relief, if not healing, by frequently going to these springs that came out. And then five miles to the south was Colossae. It was a city that was fed by mountain springs, so the water that always came to Colossae was cold Refreshing water. Laodicea did not have a water supply. The only the only river that was nearby was a river that was full of sort of a, a white, salty, horrible to the taste water supply. And so Jesus is basically telling them, I wish you were you were hot, like the like this, the warm springs of Heropolis, that your life would have meaning to people and you could bring comfort to hurting people because you know spiritual answers from Christ. I wish you had healing words that came out of your mouth. Or I wish you were cold, water, refreshing people, like the Holy Spirit, the Bible says in John 7, out of you will flow waters of Rivers of living water. I wish you were refreshing to people who were discouraged, suicidal, addicted, and you had something to tell them about Jesus that was refreshing. But there's nothing going on in your life because you're lukewarm. There is no fire there is no refreshment in you because you've already declared you have no need for God. You're not drawing near to Him. So there's, there's nothing to say to people around you that are that are hurting. The church had said they need nothing from God. They're like, hey, we got a great medical school, we got a great banking system, we got a great manufacturing center. Those are the things that we're drawing near to. Those are the things that are occupying our time and they had dried up spiritually. I'm telling you, when your life is surrounded by comfort and wealth, it is hard to be gripped with a sense of the need of the world. That is the problem of wealth. It isolates. Nobody says it then, the Old Testament prophet, Amos chapter six Woe to you who are complacent, lukewarm, apathetic, and Zion, to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria, you notable men of the foremost nation, you lie on beds adorned with ivory and lounge on your couches, you dine on choice lambs and fattened calves, you strum away on your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowl full and use the finest lotions, but you do not grieve over the ruin of your nation, of your world. Therefore, you will be among the first to go to exile. Your feasting and lounging will end. Affluence and success can easily damage one's relationship with God if it results in no dependency on God and no communion with God which produces no zeal for God. The people of Laodicea were surrounded by people who needed God. But they didn't have anything to share. Imagine, they were just lukewarm. Imagine you... You're in a factory and it's maybe 100, 105 degrees on the factory floor, middle of the summer and you come in to the water fountain, the cherished water fountain in the company and you turn the spigot on and it'd been unplugged all day and it's just warm water. How sickening. Just imagine for people who come to church, they've been away from church 10 or 20 years and they walk into a church I mean, they're taking a really big step and they walk into a church and prayer is not a big deal and there's not an emphasis on the cross of Christ, the person of Jesus. Even the music is confusing with its weird language that's not specific about the gospel. These people are coming in thirsty for a drink of eternal life and they get a swig of lukewarm churchiness and they walk away. Lukewarm is a very dangerous life to live because of what it does to other people who might want to seek God if the church does not worship Christ and the power of the Spirit by the truth of Scripture, then what we offer people will end up making a sick world even sicker. A lukewarm Christian can bring more damage to the name of Christ than a thousand demons. The real problem with being lukewarm is that you are you, neutral. Like, hey, I'm just hanging out in the middle. Is that nobody stays in the middle. It's just not the way life works, especially with Christianity. Those who give God half their heart will soon give him none of their heart. So what is the remedy for a church like this? You're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. What is the remedy for that church? Jesus, who offers them an invitation to come to him. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich. White clothes so you can wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes and you can see how cool it is of the Lord as we've seen with every, every, every letter he writes to the churches. You could tell he's, he does walk among the churches. He walks among your life and the very metaphors he uses here are exactly the, the, the physical strengths of the city. Banking and clothing and medicine. Now, you might be a little bit confused. You might be a little frightened when you say, when Jesus says, hey, come and buy from me this stuff. Because I, I, I got nothing. And I, hey, I always heard the gospel was free. What are you doing here? Buy the answer. Let me say something. When God talks about buying things Here's a real, in, God's not in the macroeconomics, microeconomics. God's got this Bible economics, and it's spelled out very clear in Isaiah 55. Come to the waters, you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. So, when the Bible talks about buying something from Jesus, it's talking about coming to Jesus. That's how you buy, you come. And what do you come with? You come with your imperfection and you trade it in for his perfection. When you buy from Jesus, you admit that you have nothing to give him. Our confession of poverty is how we purchase his riches. That's what all of that is about. So Jesus is telling the church of Laodicea, you've spent your whole life taking everything that you've got and buying whatever the world says is a must. Now I want you to take everything of your life and buy from me true life. And he says it in three ways here. He says, I want you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. Their religion was worthless because it was so mixed up with the world. Jesus said, I need to refine you. And you got to let me put some heat and pressure, some discipline in your life. But we got to get the world out of you because it's just creating a mess. You know how you get impurities out of gold? Its melting point is 1,964 degrees. And when it hits that point, all the impurities of, that are in that gold rise to the top. You scoop them off and then you're left with 24 karat gold. But not before. So exactly how Jesus was going to bring fire to them, I don't know. Maybe, maybe they just needed to take a bolder stand you know that would cause them to not be adored by the world that they adored but Jesus said, "Get the world out. Let me scoop it off and bring you let me I want you to see who I really am. Not a churchy version of me. I want you to see the true and living king and all of my shining gold holy magnificence." And then Jesus says, "I also want you to buy for me a white robe." Man, have we not seen this over and over again and we're going to see it again in two weeks. It's like everybody in Revelation is wearing white robes. Because white was just the, it's just the declaration of purity. And he says, basically defines itself in the verse. I want to give you a white robe to cover your, your shame. You know, and, and maybe I think Jesus had in his mind here because he's so creative, the Holy Spirit's so creative when he writes. I mean, what was the city? The city specialized in making black robes. And so maybe Jesus is just alluding here to the fact that you've covered yourself in the darkness of worldliness, the darkness of filth. Let me give you a white robe and cover all of your filth with my purity. And the cool thing about this white robe is you don't have to do anything for it. You don't have to sew it, weave it together. It is woven together with the blood of Jesus. It just needs to be worn by you, not made by you. He wants to give you a robe. How insulting it is to God that somebody who for years could be covered in shame and done all sorts of acts of rebellion and Jesus comes to them and says let me cover you with my white robe of purity and they respond like the Laodiceans I don't need that I don't need anything from you I certainly don't need your white robe because I'm not really that bad plus I do a lot of good that covers anything I have done bad how insulting it is to be a lukewarm person and not to appreciate appreciate the white robe of purity that covers all our sin. I saw a little photograph this week on Twitter that I, I really think probably is, would be representative today of what the Laodicean, what their heart attitude was like. It was a picture of Jesus Christ kneeling down, washing a young woman's foot while she's on her phone, probably on some... You know, really important social media page. This is the picture of apathy that is us. Jesus Christ, the king of the universe, left heaven to come, kneel down, literally the last night of his life, kneeling, sweating blood, So that the next day He could allow His body to be crucified. So that all of our guilt could be placed on Him. And so He comes before us to kneel down and wash our feet and cleanse our heart. And we are tweeting. That's lukewarm. That's apathetic. That's complacent. And Jesus says, I can't do anything with a life that's not amazed by what I've done for you. Now, at this point in the sermon, you might feel like saying, hey, bro, where's the love this week? I'll tell you where it is. It's the same place that Jesus said it's found in somebody who loves you enough to tell the truth. That's what he said. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. <clears throat> Those whom I love, I rebuke. A God who doesn't rebuke, doesn't love. It's right there. A friend who doesn't rebuke, doesn't love. A parent Who doesn't rebuke, doesn't love. It's no fun to rebuke. But it's loving if somebody's in danger. If you're a parent and you want your child's approval and their praise, and you never rebuke them, that means you don't love them. Because love rebukes when somebody's in danger. In order for you to experience the fullness of God's love, you have to let him rebuke you. You have to be courageous enough to walk into a church like this and regardless of what I'm saying on the days where it's primarily comfort, hallelujah, where the days it's a strong challenge, hallelujah, because you love me enough, oh God, to tell me the truth. I think the greatest uh, problem that came out of the pandemic and really uh, the, I guess the past two years in general is just the people leaving departing from church for a myriad of reasons, but they 're leaving the place where there is a where god 's corporate love is very much sometimes expressed in a very loving rebuke, and without placing yourself. In that, whether it's corporately in a church or in a small group where friends can gather around you and help you in your life, you, you just will not grow. I mean, it's what we all experience in marriage. It's just the, the rebuke of our partner. It's, marriage is one of the great refining tools that God invented because everybody looks good and, and thinks they're doing good until they're home. They're home. and so you just we need rebukes we need rebukes in their loving so let me quickly conclude now that God has talked about the predicament there he now Jesus Christ ends as he always does uh, with a command an invitation and a promise here's the command be earnest and repent don't be lukewarm don't be complacent Be earnest. Now, when he says be earnest, he's not talking about whipping up some emotions so you can be like somebody else. It's not what earnest means. Earnest means come to God seriously. Stop playing charades and games and say, God, I want you to renew my mind. I want to see what I've been missing. I missed that earlier when God said, I want you to buy... I salve from me, eye ointment from me. I want you to come and tell me I don't see you clearly. It was earlier in the text. I skipped right over it. Sorry. So God says, be earnest and come and pray. I want to see more of you, God. I want to have more of you, God. The Laodiceans were saying, I don't need more. Why would they not do that? Because... Life is fine as it is. I don't want there to be an adjustment at all. Why would I want to encounter God more if there's going to be an adjustment? So you pray with all of your heart. I don't want to stay neutral, God. I don't want to live for easy. I don't want to live for comfort. I want to live for more. Be earnest very hard thing to do in the Western church because we have just about enough right music that satisfies our soul just enough about right teaching to satisfy our mind just enough money to buy anything we need and it produces complacency not a desire for more so here's the invitation that was the admonition now here's the invitation here I am Revelation 3.20, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with that person and they with me. Wow. Not expecting this to this church. This is one of the most tender verses in all the Bible. You know this. If you do really even know the Bible, you've heard this one. But you probably didn't know it was... It was given to that church. The worst church got the most tender offer. I mean, this is Jesus Christ. He's got the power to disintegrate mountains and dry up oceans. And here he is, says, I'm standing outside of your home knocking. Please let me in. I want to change your life. And he says, when I come in, I want to eat dinner with you. Now that's the that's as good as it gets. If you've got a good friend, you know your best times in life have been over food. And Jesus said, "This is the way I want you to think about me. I'm knocking, open the door. I want to come in and eat with you and you eat with me." For those of you who think Christianity is just following a bunch of rules, I want to tell you, you've missed everything. Because Christianity is eating the greatest food in the greatest city at the greatest table with the greatest king. This was an invitation to do over when he said, I stand at the door and knock. I just want to start over. I just want to start over with you. Just reset. This... Verse inspired the artist Holman Hunt. Long ago painting, got popular in its day. A picture of a door that was overgrown with weeds and ivy and whose hinges were so rusty because the door hadn't been opened for years. And outside the door was Jesus Christ in the middle of the night holding a lantern and knocking. Think of all the ways that Christ knocks on the door of our heart. Through your conscience, through the gifts of providence, the agony of trial, the voice of nature, the kindness of a friend, a Bible verse remembered, a song well sung. All of these are knockings. Jesus Christ, let me into your life. And how about that? Even during all of those years when we were so annoyed by his knocking and would have done anything to be able to make him stop knocking, he doesn't stop knocking. Jesus Christ wants to come into your life and I apologize that my poor little sermon cannot articulate the beautiful heartbeat of Jesus when he says, Behold, I stand at the door of your life and knock. Whew. I remember growing up, I was I made a lot of trips down the aisle when we used to give altar calls in church. In high school, I needed to go down the to the altar a lot. And the song that always seemed to thrust me out there was this one. The Savior is waiting to enter your heart. Why don't you let him come in? There's nothing in this world to keep you apart. What is your answer to him? Time after time, he's waited before and now he's waiting again to see if you're willing to open the door. Oh, how he wants to come in. If you want to miss everything that God has for you, all you have to do is nothing. Not open the door. Just let him keep knocking. And to not open that door is the greatest and most tragic mistake you'll ever make in your life. And when your life comes to ruin and you come up with a thousand excuses of why your life is ruined, the only answer that the great amen will say is, you did not open the door that day. The greatest news I can tell you is that Jesus Christ is knocking and look what he says. Anyone who opens the door, I'll come in and eat with him. Anyone, 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 anyone. I don't ask you to do this, but would you say it with me, church? Anyone. And when he comes in, he comes in to eat to fellowship, to rejoice as two friends rejoice over the eating of a meal. And the meal that he offers you is the joy of eternal life. Coming in into your emptiness, he brings fullness. Into your sinfulness, he brings righteousness. Into your darkness, he brings light. Into your doubt, he brings assurance. Into your shame, he brings forgiveness. What a sight. God eating with man at the table of the Lord. In the city of the Lord, in the house of the Lord.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from Hope Point Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. If you would like to learn more about us or give to this ministry, please go to our website at hopepoint.org. We hope you can join us again next week.